You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. Well, awesome. How are y'all doing this morning? Great. I like it. Great is always, that's a good answer. That, you know, great is a solid answer. All right, let's play a game. How about this? Y'all want to play a game this morning, get a little action going? Yeah, I got one person. He's all in. Thank you, Chris Bailey. Here we go. All right, so here's the deal, Chris Bailey. You and me are going to play a game. I'm just kidding. So I'm going to show a picture on the screen behind me, and I want you to guess, say out loud, as loud as you can, what you think the picture is, and then I will reveal to you what the picture actually is. So uh, it might be a distorted picture. It may be zoomed in or some other way, so just so you know, don't just yell at me. It's some pink thing. That's not an answer, uh, just FYI, right? So picture number one, what is it? Pencil. Man, it's too easy. All right, next one. Here we go. It is a pencil. Yep, great. That was too easy. All right, picture number two. Ha-ha. Yes. What, we got an AC vent. Razor. Ding, 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 ding. Razor. There it is. Some of y'all, did anybody think when he said Razor, anybody think like that old Motorola Razor flip phone? Anybody? Nobody? Just me. Great. Fantastic. Picture number three. Oreo. Man, I got to make them harder. Okay, here we go. I like stumping y'all if y'all hadn't learned yet. I just, I don't, I don't really want to give you a good one. All right, last one. Here we go. Yes. Apple, ketchup, bell pepper. Excuse me? Wow. Chili pepper, red Corvette. Anybody? Nothing? This one's actually really hard. Let's see it. It's the, it's the lid of a Coca-Cola bottle. Yes, lid of a Coca-Cola bottle. Thank you for playing with me. You get absolutely nothing if you want something. So here's the deal. You know, sometimes in, in order to see the full picture of something, we have to change our perspective. If you look at each one of those images, what did we do? We zoomed in on each image. And yes, some of us are really intelligent and can you know, see the, the full picture of it, even if it's zoomed in. But for the most part in life, when we only get a snapshot of what something is, a very small picture, we, generally speaking, have no idea what this small thing really represents. And so what we need is a larger picture. Sometimes we need to be able to shine a light in a different way to be able to see exactly what is going on. In our, in our text today, the disciples were struggling to see the full picture of something. And as a result, here's the deal, they struggled to believe. They struggled to believe. And I think if we're honest, we, we've all been there. We, we've struggled to believe in something. We've struggled to believe in God. We've struggled to believe in parts of God. We've struggled to believe in scriptures that he speaks and things that we hear about. Brandon mentioned earlier, like we struggled to believe in tithing. There are aspects of God's character that if we're honest, we dig deep. We go, I don't know if I fully understand that. And so I don't know if I fully believe. And maybe the answer to belief is to gain a greater perspective. And my hope today is that through unveiling this scripture, you and I can gain a better belief, not only about God, but about how God has come to save us, how God has come to relate to us and give us a bigger picture. If you're taking notes, the title of my sermon is Shine a Light 
and gain perspective. Shine a light and gain perspective. Let's begin walking through our text as we always do. Luke chapter 9. And I'm just going to kind of summarize this first part. So it says, on the next day when they had come down from the mountain. So what's happening here is Jesus and Peter, James, and John have come down from the Mount of Transfiguration. So this is after the moment where these three disciples got to see Jesus in his glory, transfigured into a majestic picture that we discussed last week. And they are now meeting the rest of the disciples and a great crowd arises. And amongst that crowd is a father who has a child who is in agony, who is seizing, who is in pain. And if you have ever had a sick uh, child, if you're a parent, or if you've ever had a, a child that's been diseased, you can relate to this moment. And even those that haven't, you can somewhat see and feel the agony of this parent in this situation. He is coming to Jesus saying, I need your help. And something that sticks out to me very clearly in this text that Luke portrays for us and gives us the moment is what does he end it before Jesus takes over? His last statement is this, what? And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they couldn't. I've come to your disciples, your followers, Jesus, and they could not heal my son can you? The first thing that the disciples struggled to do is they struggled to believe in the authority given to them. They struggled to believe in the authority given to them. Let's look back a couple of verses. Flip your pages to Luke chapter 9, verse 1. This is just a couple of days earlier. It says this, And he called the twelve, this is Jesus, together, and it says what? He gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So what we see in that passage is that all 12 disciples were fully equipped to heal and to cast out demons in Jesus' name. And what we know from the text that we've read this morning is that they even identified with this gifting. Flick back to where we've read so far and go to verse 49. This is a little later in our text. And this, this is going to reveal something about their ownership of this gifting. So in, in verse 1, they were given authority. And then here in verse 9, it says, John answered, Master, talking to Jesus, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him. Not because we didn't believe in the power, but what does he say? But because he does not follow with us. So John, and likely the other disciples, owned this idea and this equipping of the calling to be able to heal and cast out. They owned it so much, they, they enforced it. They policed it to a degree, right? So they, they owned this, but yet when the child comes to them and the, the father comes to them, they are unable to heal him. Why? Because they did not truly believe in the authority that was given to them. How does Jesus respond? Verse 41, Jesus answers, O faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. 
Uh, I don't know about you, but those would be very difficult words for me to hear from Jesus. It's almost as bad as standing in front of him and say, eh, I never knew you. Like, that's what it would feel like, I think, in that moment where this father comes to Jesus and he goes, man, your disciples couldn't do it. And the dude turns around. Jesus looks at, him, looks at them and essentially he goes, I've given you everything you need to do it, and yet you still won't do it. Seriously? I mean, that's what he's saying. Now, I, I want to note, I want to make sure that we, we understand what's going on here. This failure and this faithless comment is to all of the disciples. So in context... The nine disciples are the ones who couldn't actually heal the child. Because where were the other three? At the moment of the healing, they were at the Mount of Transfiguration. Or I should say the proposed healing. So you could look at this text and go, well, it's really just the nine. Peter, James, and John, they had full faith. Luke's going to address that for us in this text. And he's going to unravel that that's not true. And so what we can surmise from this moment is when Jesus looks at them and says, you're a faithless and twisted generation, how long do I have to be with you? It isn't just to a segment of the disciples. It is to all of the disciples. After healing the child, he then pulls the disciples kind of aside, and I like to think of it like a huddle. Like he, he, he does what he needs to do for, for the father and for the family and for the child, and then he pulls the knuckleheads aside and said, come here right now. You ever done that to your kids? Like, get over here right now. Let me see your eyes, right? And that's what I can see Jesus doing with these men. He even says, let these words sink into your ears. Boy, right? Like, I'm, this is not that, let these words sink into your ears. This is not that meek, humble, really nice Jesus, right? We think of Jesus as this guy who walked the earth who was never angry, as if anger is always a sin. Not true. This is, I'm going to throw the tables Jesus, right? Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, in that moment, they're probably going, what? But this is not new information to them. Let's go a little earlier. Just a few days earlier, verse 21. So this is all happening within a couple of days. Jesus has already told them things like this. Verse 21 says, The Son of Man, and he's looking at the disciples, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be rose or be raised excuse me not new information they've been given everything they need to trust the authority given to them because Jesus is unpacking who he is and so they should then be able to trust in hey man I've got this special unique gifting for this moment for this season to be able to be the hands and feet of Jesus quite literally in so many ways and yet they are not doing it. They are not truly believing. After Jesus says, let this sink into your ears, verse 45 gives us a little bit more information of why they aren't getting it. It says, they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they may not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So what did they do with this information? 
Hey, the Son of Man has come to do X, Y, and Z. What do they do with it? Nothing. They didn't even understand it. Now, you may read that text, and you may ask the question, well, why, why would God conceal this information? Why, why would He say something and, and make it to where they couldn't perceive it? And I think if you landed on answering like, well, that's just His will, I don't think you fully under, understood the text. Because Jesus isn't saying something that they can't understand. Jesus is saying something that they chose not to understand. There's a difference. You could go down the parable of the soils thing and go, well, Satan came in and and took the seed out. This is not that moment. This is a moment where the disciples were heart of heart and were not trying to listen to what Jesus had to say. The disciples were listening to what they wanted to hear. And those words were not the ones they wanted to hear. This isn't the Jesus they were looking for. And I'll give you some reasons why. The primary reason is just a couple of days earlier, Jesus says something very insightful to these men. Luke chapter 8, the first part of verse 10, it says, To you it has been given to know the secrets. Who knows secrets? Not a lot of people. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. So why would Jesus kind of open up their mind and give them these secrets to the kingdom of God, and then just a few days later say something that is very plain, very basic to who the Messiah is, and make it to where they couldn't understand it. He wouldn't. That doesn't make sense. There's no logical way to get to that place. What is more likely is that the disciples were so entrenched in one vein, one school of thought about Jesus, that they couldn't understand what He was saying because it wasn't what they expected or what they wanted to hear. See, in some fashion, they understood that Jesus was a mighty messenger of God. They may have even said something like a divinely sent avatar of God. But in this moment, I do not fully believe that they comprehended what it meant for Jesus to be the Son of God, the Messiah who was coming to be slain. They do not believe that He was the one to come and usher in this new kingdom to right wrongs and to break the curse of sin for all mankind. It was some other messianic view that they had, and instead of hearing the words that Jesus had for them, their belief was so wrapped up in something broken that they couldn't hear the truth. Have you ever found yourself there? I was reading a book recently, and it asked a question talking about spiritual blindness. See, when somebody is physically blind, they recognize that they're physically blind. You don't have to convince someone who's blind that they're blind. They, they, they get it. They can't see. But what about when we're spiritually blind? How do you get someone who's spiritually blind to recognize that you don't see the kingdom? You don't see Jesus. You're seeing something completely different. And what makes matters worse in this situation, and I think really goes to promote this idea that they weren't looking at the right Jesus, he, Luke makes sure he adds something at the end of that verse, in verse 45, what he says. He says, and they were afraid to ask him about this 
saying. Hear me. Faith doesn't shy away from hard questions. Faith doesn't shy away from hard questions. Faith embraces free thought while remaining open to an understanding of the unknown or maybe even unresolved this side of heaven. So I'm not telling you that if you have a question about faith or if you have a doubt about faith and you go to the Lord, you are 100% going to get an answer. But I am telling you that it is the right thing to do to go to Him in that way. Doubts are not sin. What we do with our doubts can become sin. But doubts in and of themselves are not sin. There's a song we sing, and, and it's on Christian radio, written by a guy named Cody Carnes, and it says, run to the Father. And when we have doubts, that's the answer to your question. What should I do with these doubts? You run to the Father. Do you know how that reveals this, I, this belief and this understanding that we can trust the equipping and the authority that He's given to us? Because we trust Him. We trust His authority. So not only did the disciples struggle to believe in the authority given to them, the disciples struggled to believe in the one who gave the authority. You see how those are interconnected? So we don't struggle to believe in our gifting unless we're struggling to believe in the giver. Tim Keller says this about us in doubts and how we should deal with them. It says, a faith without some doubts is like a human body with no antibodies in it. People who, go, who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask the hard questions about what they believe or why they believe, excuse me, as they do, will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart Skeptic. So what do we do when we doubt what the Lord has given us? What do we do when we doubt our, our giftings, our skills, our spiritual disciplines, our, or the spiritual character that He's given us? We go to the Father. So they, just, they struggled to believe in not only their gifting, but they struggled to believe in the one who gave them their gifting. And this is evidence in what we've seen so far, but it's also more, more so evidence in the next two chapters. They leave this moment of confusion where Jesus confronts them with the truth of who he is. And this, un, this, this misunderstanding, and immediately Luke reveals to us their hearts. Keep in mind, he's just huddled them. And basically said, look at me eye to eye. Here's who I am. They didn't understand. And here's the direct next thing that follows. Verse 46. It says, an argument arose among them. As to which of them was the greatest? Now you just got slapped by daddy at the dinner table. And you leave that moment and you ask the question, hey, which one of us is better? I'm the best disciple. You know, I'm the one he loved, right? This is John speaking, right? But Jesus, knowing the reason of their hearts, took a child, put him by his side, and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For who is least among you all is the one 
who is great. Listen, I need to tell you this. If you have to tell someone that you are good at something, there's at least one of two things that is true, and maybe even both, okay? The first thing is you probably aren't as good as you think you are, right? If I have to tell you that I'm really good at something, I may not be that good at it. The second thing that could also be true, it could be an either or, but it could be a both and, you severely lack humility. Severely. Now, I'm not talking about sitting in a job interview and your boss asks what you're good at. If you don't answer that question, you're probably not going to get the job, right? I'm just saying in normal everyday life like these men find themselves in, they're walking down this road after they've been slapped by dad at the dinner table and they're going, man, look how great I am at discipling and following and I'm all the things. No, you're not. Obviously, you just missed it. These men lacked a complete and total understanding of what following Jesus is to embody. Earlier, Jesus told them to take up their cross and to follow him, and now he gives them a very practical example of what it means to do that. And I love Mark's account of this moment where Jesus brings in the child, so I'm going to read it really quickly. He gives a few more details that Luke leaves out. And it says, And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, Hey, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So they knew they were in the wrong. Right? And then he sat down and he calls the twelve. It's almost one of those like, get closer. Look me in the eyes again. And he says to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This picture right here is a uh, an act, a moment, a, a symbolic representation of what a, a Greco-Roman welcoming would look like. So, yes, these are Jewish men, and they have Jewish cultures and customs, but they're living in the middle of a Greco-Roman society as well, because Rome is overseeing their land. And so, in so many ways, these cultural norms would have crept their way into their life. And Jesus puts this child in a physical place of honor, in the middle of these grown men. And he says, receive him. Now, the Roman reception in this moment would only happen to someone of equal or greater stature than the person welcoming someone. So, here is Jesus, many called rabbi and teacher. Someone who had prominent place in culture. A child did not have a prominent place in culture. A woman did not have a prominent place in culture. And if we're honest, none of his disciples had a prominent place in culture, but yet Jesus brings one of the most lowly citizens in their culture, puts him in the midst of the men, and says, when you receive him, meaning when you can humble yourselves and quit asking that question of who's the greatest, and you can see that the ground is level at the cross, then and only then will you begin to understand what it means to follow me. Your skill set 
your gifting, your knowledge of something is only as good as your humble use of it. And their lack of understanding is revealed in their immaturity in this moment. See, they were given great gifts. I don't know how many of you have cast out demons in Jesus' name. I really haven't, right? I haven't healed anybody in Jesus' name. They've got an amazing thing going on, but what happens? They doubt their belief because they're too full of themselves, and so they doubt Jesus. This is the lesson for us. We're, we're, we're trying to gain perspective on how we can have a deeper belief in God, and these in front of us are examples of here are things not to do. The disciples are wrestling with the entire purpose of who Jesus is and why are you even here? They're not seeing that he came to bridge this gap between the Father and broken humanity. They're not seeing that we're all in need of atonement and a payment for our sin. And that's why Jesus has come, to be the sacrificial lamb. And this means something for our belief. This means something for our day in and day out life. And I've said it once and I'll say it again. The disciples struggled to see that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Meaning that there's no humility in their understanding of God and their need of a Savior or someone else's need. See, they see themselves different. They don't see themselves as like normal people. And I want to unpack this last moment that Luke puts on display for us and, and, and this misunderstanding from the disciples. So that, those last verses, 49 through 50, John replies back to Jesus. Now, I want you to remember, John is one of the ones who has just seen Jesus transfigured. J meaning, John has seen Jesus in glorious light. Scripture said he was dazzling. He had seen Moses and Elijah. John has seen things that you and I have prayed for, right? God, I need this burning bush. If you'll show me this burning bush, then I will, right? You ever said that prayer? If you haven't, you might, right? Like it just, you've been there, or if you haven't been there, there's going to be a moment in your life of God, if you'll just show me a sign, I'll do whatever you ask, right? John's had the sign. And he looks, he says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We try to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. Here is what John is concerned about. And likely the disciples as well. He is more concerned about his little group than he is the kingdom of God. He is more concerned about the growth of his little group then he is the kingdom of God. Let that sink in for just a moment. May it never be said of us here at Piedmont that we are more concerned about our chairs in this room than any other gospel preaching church. I need, like, if you have a seat at the table, I need you to hear that. And I need you to own that, and I need you to receive it, and I need you to walk in it. Our church is no more important than any other gospel-centered, gospel-believing, gospel-preaching, gospel-proclaiming, and sending church. We will not be those people. Because all men were created in the, the image of God. 
And then what happened? They all fell. And then Jesus came for all. And then when he said, for those who receive me, they are then all called to go and proclaim. They're not more special than another. And John is struggling to see that. In so many ways, this idea is behind the shine campaign for us. Yes, we're trying to raise $15,000 to send to overseas missions and to local missions. And it's a big goal at a small church. But in so many ways, I'm also trying to move your heart to care. I'm not saying you don't care. But you can always care more. And here's what I mean. How often do we lift up prayers for other churches and other church leaders? And this is a side note, and I'm going to go longer than I expected. Sorry, band. Before we get to the how often are you doing it for other churches, I want to hit this. How often do you do it for our church? Someone posted recently, famous pastor and kind of a youth leader of thousands of youth pastors. See, there's a, there's a great disparity sometimes in staff culture at churches. And the great disparity is this, that the lead pastor often gets a lot of focus, but everyone else on the staff gets little to no focus. And that isn't from necessarily the lead pastor. It's from us as a congregation. And his post said, do you know that the youth pastor is still a pastor? Like, did you know that the youth pastor's wife is still a pastor's wife who's struggling with some of the same thing that maybe the lead pastor's wife is struggling with? It said that the pastoral position is one of the loneliest positions in ministry and in job worlds. Because we're around people all the time, but we can't ever let people in. And so my question to you, I'm not saying that we are this church. I'm just asking. Amy and I have a kind of a health culture, uh, I guess, system to evaluate how, how healthy is the church's culture. And one of the systems is this. If you're there as a staff person, I tell my friends this as they're interviewing and as they're going to other churches and they're evaluating the health of their life at the church, if you're at a church for three months, I don't care if you're an administrative assistant, I don't care if you're the lead pastor and the choir, whoever, whatever position you serve at a church on staff, ask yourself this question. In a three-month span, how often has someone from the church engaged with you with their life, meaning they've invited you to lunch, they've invited you out, they've invited you over, they've given you something, they've sent you an encouraging text message, a letter, a love note, whatever it is. You can erase the love note. <laughs> because it's great to be a welcoming church. Hey, man, how you doing? You know, but if all you ever do is, hey, how you doing? You know what I am? I'm alone, and on a one day a week for one hour, I get a, hey, how are you? And that's not just about staff. We got people in a, in a church this size that feel alone because we're not engaging with them. So before, I, I'm, I'm, and I'm going to hit the, 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 the hammer to the nail with the other church thing. Are you praying for your church and your church staff? Like how often are you lifting, lifting up Hunter and Megan? How often are you lifting up Mateo and Kaylee and Landon and Ari? They need it. I mean, I need it too. But don't let us be a church that doesn't love on our own people well, especially our staff. 
But what John is struggling to see here is that other churches and other ministries and other people in ministry matter. I want to bring up a couple of churches that matter. They should be on your heart. They should be in your prayer, prayer journals. Ingleside Baptist Church. What do we need to pray for them? It's the biggest church in our city. Listen, Ingleside Baptist Church is going through a shift. Their lead pastor, who has been their lead pastor for 30 plus years, who I would attribute a lot of the growth in their church, not taking it away from God, God through him, is retiring in six months. Let me tell you something. Satan would love for nothing more than that church to crumble. And it is a beacon in our city. I hope it thrives. I hope the person that comes in wins so many people for Christ, they start asking about, why do we even need other churches? Like, that's the kind of heart we should have. We should be praying for Tim McCoy, who is the pastor now. We should be praying for the next pastor at Ingleside Baptist Church. Because thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people in our city, they, they, every Christmas they do a thing. And about 10,000 people show up to their thing. 10,000 hear the gospel, we should care about the future of that church. New city, birthed about the same time as us, about 16 years ago. They've hopped a couple different locations. They just recently bought another location on Riverside Drive. If you ask their leadership, they bought a big building, probably bigger than they need, but it's where God led them to in a big dream. We should be praying that that big building gets filled up. 80-something thousand square foot. It's a big building. There's a lot of opportunity for ministry. A lot of opportunity for people to come to faith in Christ. And let, let's, let's go ahead and hit the elephant in the room. We should be praying for strong, gospel-centered black churches in our community. We should be. Because our community is divided in a lot of ways. Socioeconomically, we're, we're divided in schools. And we're certainly divided in race. Now, I'm not saying that having a church of predominantly white or predominantly black is bad, right? Because sometimes, culturally, we sing different songs. Y'all are quiet as a mouse when I'm preaching. Go to a black church. That's not a thing, okay? It's not a bad thing. We're different. And so what we do need to be praying for is the differences in us aren't divisions. We're, we're praying for gospel growth. So churches like the link that we partner with time and time again in the, history, in, the, in the past, and we want to continue to do so in the future, we want to pray that they continue to reach their community and that they grow. We don't want to be like John in this moment. We don't want to be focused on ourselves. We want to be focused on the kingdom of God. Now, we have a job at hand. We have a task. So, in summation, the, the disciples struggled to believe in the authority given to them. They struggled to believe in the one who gave the authority, and then they struggled to see that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. What they needed was to shine a light and gain perspective. And sometimes, for you and I today, we can gain perspective by watching the mistakes of others. The disciples' example of failure should remind us of our own failures. It should remind us of God's grace and remind us of the better path of submission to Him. Remember this, that whenever the gospel is proclaimed, the good news that Jesus came, died, was buried, was resurrected three days later, when that news is proclaimed, you're invited 
to victory? How will you respond today? How will you take a step back and ask the Lord for a greater perspective so that you don't make the same failures that the disciples made in those moments? Let's pray. God, I ask that as we struggle at times with belief, as we don't understand things, that you would give us the freedom and the desire to come to you with those struggles. That you'd allow us to gain a a larger perspective of what you desire to do in your kingdom. God, would you help us become less so that you can become more? Would you help us to trust in your faithfulness? Would you help us to see the grand picture of the gospel? That it isn't just for salvation, but it's also for here and for now. When difficult topics and difficult things come up in our life, God, help us to run to the Father. Help us to not struggle in the belief of who you are. Help us to function in the gifting that you've given us so that we can see more souls reunited with you and walking in abundant life. I ask all this in the mighty and precious name of Jesus. Amen.